Clint, for our prayer tonight, and I hope that you are listening carefully to those announcements, and whatever announcements might apply to you, I hope that you will listen and follow along and cooperate with us on that, and I direct your attention to the book of Job, Job chapter 37. 37, I don't think we're quite finished with this chapter, so we want to spend some special time with this, and you'll remember that this is the last speech of Elihu. And so it's coming down to the end of the uh, book, and we're coming to a very exciting part of the book, chapter 38, which we may get into tonight. And so there are questions that we prepared for you on 37. As you came into the auditorium, you'll find questions out there on 38 and 39. These are designed to help you study more carefully and read carefully the book that we're studying, the book of Job. It's not necessarily an easy book. It is a book of poetry, Hebrew poetry, very ancient book. And so sometimes, because we're not used to poetry, sometimes it's a little harder for us to get the figures of speech that are employed. The basic message of the book is that sometimes uh, the righteous do suffer through no fault of their own. And as we're going to see, as it comes uh, more evident for us, we're not in a position to question God or second-guess God or criticize God. And that's the great lesson that's going to come about, and we're going to see that very much in 38. In 37, Elihu continues his discussion about how great God is, and he's talking about the sovereignty of God and nature. And that's where we were last time, and there's a couple of interesting elements there that we would like to look at. For example, his voice. The voice was like thunder, and he would liken the voice of God to the great thunder of God and the lightning and the trembling and he's saying there by that how great God is and how sovereign God is. All right. No. 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 Now, Job did do all of that. He challenged God. He was somewhat critical of God at times. But asking why was certainly not uh, an issue. That is not a problem. Uh, I think all of us have gone through the sufferer's question, why me? And we tried to address that Sunday morning. Why am I going through this? So asking this question is not a problem. I don't think that's an issue at all. The, the doubting of God, the uh, challenge of our faith, that is a serious matter. And to criticize God, that is a serious matter. And so we don't want to be blasphemous and critical of God and his uh, plan and purpose for our lives or his sovereignty of the world. And now I think Job got involved in a lot of that. And you and I have studied very carefully some of the things Job has said. And it is very, some of it's hard to swallow. Some of it's hard to swallow. Now we have said, well, that's because of his great suffering. Uh, he's speaking from the throes of misery. All of that is true. All of that is true. He's speaking from the standpoint of ignorance. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know why. All of that is true. He's speaking from the standpoint of saying, you know, if God were here, I would ask him and God would surely show that I would be innocent, that sort of thing. All of that he went through in his mind. He's criticized by his three friends and the fourth as well, basically. You are guilty of sin and that's why you're suffering. That is false. We know that's just not true. 
when you read Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, you see what a great spiritually minded man Job was. And so we know he's not suffering because of sin. Elihu came along and said, well, you're suffering not because of past sins, but the way you're handling this, you're suffering because of that now. The interesting thing, and about all I can say is it's an interesting thing, is that Job does not answer Elihu. The interesting thing about this is that God does not reprove Elihu. Now, Elihu is not totally correct on these particular matters, but he's ahead of the class with regard to the other three. And I think we see that now in 36 and 37, which is by far his best speech. The issues that he brings up is God's role in nature. He talks about the snow in verse 5, 6. Uh, For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, and to the downpour and the rain, be strong. He seals the hand of every man. Uh, By that, he simply means in verse 7, if he wants to stop the work, he can stop the work. He seals the hands of every man. And the snow can stop the work. The rain can stop people from working. God can do that. And it shows God's greatness. We talked about the beasts and the the uh, remaining in the den in verse 8. Then the beast goes into his lair and remains in his den. And we raise the possibility, maybe he's talking about hibernation there. How that a beast can stay there and sleep through uh, the winter uh, for the months. He says in verse 9, out of the... South comes the storm and out of the north the cold and from the breath of God ice is made and the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also with, it, with moisture he loads the thick cloud um, and we talked about this. He disperses the cloud of, its, of his lightning. It changes direction, turning around by its guidance. I'm in verse 12, that it may be whatever he commands it. God is in control of his universe. And that's true. God is in control of the universe, trying to show Job just how great God is. Let's go on down to verse 14. And we got four points in uh, this, the rest of this book that we really want to look at. And basically, where we are in Elihu's speech as we wind it up, God deserves to be reverenced, and we should be in awe of God. That's Elihu. Listen to this, O Job. Stand up and consider the wonders of God. Do you know how God establishes them and makes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Verse 15. Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of the perfect uh, in knowledge? You whose garments are hot When the land is still because of the south wind, can you with him spread out the skies strong as a molten mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. And now that's the second point we need to emphasize. First point is we ought to be in awe of God because of his great greatness and because of the way he can handle and control the world which he has created. But another thing that we need to understand is even if we were in the presence of God, we wouldn't know what to say. And that is one of the things that Job wanted. If we went back to chapter 13, we would see how that Job was saying, you know, if I could just be in the presence of God, if God would just answer me, if I could just explain this to him, I'm sure 
that we could get this worked out. Well, he's making the point by verse 19. If we were in the presence of God, we wouldn't know what to say. We wouldn't know how to say it. Now, teach us what we shall say to him. How would we say things to God? Because God is so great and God is so powerful. We cannot arrange our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak? Or should a man say that he would be swallowed up? Uh, you know, just as he would try to defend himself before God, destruction would take place. There's no way that you can argue with God. There's no way that you could actually go up against God and in turn know what to say and, and when to say it. So that's the second point of this last portion of the chapter. All of God, even if in the presence of God, we wouldn't know what to say. Yes, sir. Well, I think he's talking about the clouds there. We cannot arrange our case because of darkness. Uh, shall it be told him that I would speak? No, I think you're right. I think it's because of a lack of knowledge we wouldn't be able to answer him. I think you're right. A lack of knowledge. Verse 21. Um, we cannot find God. That's his third point here. And as I was looking through this and reading through this, I said, what is the main point that he's trying to make to Job? And right now he said, you can't find God. Where would, where would you go to find him? Now, men do not see the light which is bright in the skies, but the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. Around God is awesome majesty. Could you look at the sun? I wouldn't advise it. Uh, the sun is so bright and the... Uh, stars can be so, so bright and spectacular. And he's saying, then think about how awesome the majesty of God would be. And then he says in verse 23, the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is exalted in power. That power means sovereignty, you see. And he shall not do violence to justice. God will do justly. This is one of the problems Job had. Now, I haven't taken the time to go back and rehearse those things, but Job was actually saying, you know, God, it doesn't pay to be good because look what happened to me. But Elihu is saying, and he will, and he will not do just violence to justice. If you're righteous, God will reward you an abundant righteous, righteousness. And then in verse 24, uh, he's basically saying we must fear God. Therefore, men... Fear him. He does not regard any who are wise of heart. So you have four main points here, and that's the last portion. I think the first portion of the chapter, and I'm rehearsing now chapter 37, is discussing the great power of God in the world in which we live and how he's in control of the universe and how he's in control of, the, of nature and, and the thunder and the lightning and the storms and the snow and all of that sort of thing was the first part of the chapter which we rehearsed, but now... He's talking about the results of that, and the results of that surely should keep us in mind that we should reverence God and respect him, uh, that we cannot approach God. We wouldn't know what to say if we could. We cannot find him, verses 21 through 23, and we must fear him, verse 24, which means reverential respect for God. Now, I can't argue with that. I can't argue with that. Uh, I think what Elihu is saying here is accurate. It doesn't apply to Job. 
but it is certainly accurate and helps us understand our relationship with God. Now, comment or question before I go any further. This is a good time. Yes, sir. I'm saying that he will be just. He will not bring judgment upon a righteous person. He will not bring judgment upon the righteous. That's Elihu. He will not bring calamity upon the righteous. Of course, he's not right about that. But now he's really talking about the wicked here. Uh, And he will not do violence to justice. God will do justly. Now he's right about that. Uh, Job was challenging that earlier in the book. He was saying, it doesn't matter whether you're good or bad. It all comes out the same way. Elihu says, oh no, that's not true. What is true is God will honor justice. God will honor righteousness. And we need to fear him, verse 24. That's a good chapter. In fact, that 36 and 37, that together is Elihu's last speech. And it is quite a picturesque and remarkable portion out of the Bible, 36 and 37. No, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. No, not this Elihu. Not this Elihu. That's a good question. Well, now it's hard to keep it all straight, isn't it? I understand. Sometimes it's a little hard to keep it straight and, and because a lot of these people have the same name. And, and sometimes this book is a little hard for us to put in the proper historical perspective. But no, I don't think he's related in that way. All right, somebody else got a question for me about Job. Anybody? Chapter 38. Job finally gets what he's been wanting. What's that old saying? Be careful what you pray for. You might get it. Well, that's what this fellow's got right here. Now, God speaks. Now, Job has been wanting that all the way through the book, and God has been silent. Now, God speaks. How did God speak here? Spoke through the whirlwind. What is a whirlwind? Well, you, I knew you Texans would know what a whirlwind was. Well, I think tornado is a good answer. Uh, tornado is a good answer. We talked about tornado before. God spoke from the tornado, spoke from the whirlwind. And, um, and said, who is this that darkens counsel? Now, as we read through, through this, think a little bit about this is how is God's tone presented in speaking to Job? Do you think God is severe when he talks to Job here? Or is God very merciful and kind uh, when he speaks to Job here? I think he speaks to him very firmly. He is not unkind. He does not berate him, belittle him. 
Um, but he's very firm with him. And so he says, who is this that darkens counsel? Um, this is a difficult task here that Job has been given in this incident here. Uh, we're going to be looking at God's divine justice. Job had denied it, and the four friends had defended it. But as I read through this, I think God ignored it. I don't see God really addressing the matter of his divine justice here. I don't think it was necessary for him to do it. By words without knowledge. Who confuses this issue by talking off the top of their head when they don't know what they're talking about? Who is this? Well, I think we all do that sometimes. Yeah. Uh, now gird up your loins like a man, verse 3. It's a firm tone here. Get ready. You're in for a difficult assignment. I don't think God's being severe. I don't think God's punishing him. I don't mean to say that at all. Girding up the loins of the mind is a very old Hebrew expression. You find it in the New Testament. Basically, you kind of take your robes and you pull them up and you tie the sash around your robe so that you get ready to go to work. And you got a difficult task ahead of you, and that's what he's saying here. Now gird up your loins like a man. And I will ask you, and you instruct me, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Verse 4. Well, that's a good question. Where was Job? Where was any of us? We didn't exist. Well, where were you when I created the world? Now that's got to be a humbling question for Job. It is an humbling question for all of us. When you think about the greatness of God and what God has done and what God continues to do in this particular section of the discussion, he says, now where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Hey, if you notice foundation, does the earth have foundation? Well, it sort of acts like the earth is a building. And he starts talking about the building, how he built the building. Now, the earth literally doesn't have a foundation, but a building does. And a building has a footer, and a building has cornerstones and corners and that kind of thing that we want to be true and square. He said, well, where were you when I started building this? Tell me if you have understanding. Now, what he's talking about is the earth, the world. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? I say, here we go with that building metaphor again. You know, when you put the pillars in and uh, however they build it, and they're putting the joists and all of that sort of thing together, and the header and the footer and... And the wall, now when, when I was putting all that together, where were you in all of that? Or who laid its cornerstone? You and I have studied about cornerstone before because of what it come, how it comes over into the New Testament. But the cornerstone was the most important portion of the house in that time because it set the dimensions of the house. If the cornerstone is off, the rest of the house is going to be off. It's not going to be true and square. He said, well, where were you when I laid, uh, uh, when I laid its cornerstone? 
when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, verse 7. I wonder what he's referring to there in the morning stars. Of course, this is Hebrew poetry, but I have an idea of what he's talking about. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, which we'll not go back to for the present, but you know, what's going on in chapter 1? What is the deal there? You remember the scenario of chapter 1? What was part of that? God is there. And the sons of God are there. And when we were talking about that back in chapter 1, chapter 2, we were saying these are the angels. And so I have an idea that he's talking about the angels here in verse 7. When the morning stars sang together, there was great rejoicing at the creation. And all the sons of God shouted for joy. There was great jubilation when God created the world. And sometimes brethren will ask the question, well, why did God create everything anyway? Well, why did God create us to begin with? If he knew that some would not be faithful and some would be lost, why create? Because something is better than nothing. And to exist is better than non-existence. And God always does what's best. He always does what's good. And creation and existence is better than non-existence. And when the angelic host, created beings themselves, saw the creative work of God and the world being created in six days and resting on the seventh, they shouted for joy. Well, it's a, I think, a beautiful insight into the created world. Now you guys go back, you and I go back to Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter two, as we've done on various occasions and we talk about the creation of the world and God said, let there be light and there was light and, and God set the greater light in the day and the lesser light in the night and we go through all the elements of the six days of creation and the seventh day he rested. And yet here we have a poetic reference to the creation of the world and what a great thing it was. And where were you when all of this was going on? You're the guy that knows so much. You're the guy that understands all this stuff. Where were you when all that was going on? Well, where were the three friends? Where was Elihu? Elihu wasn't around. None of us were around. Job wasn't around. You're not in a position to criticize me, Job. And that's his point through this great series on down through chapter 42, the first part of chapter 42. You can't justly criticize God. You've got no basis upon which to do it. There's no standard. He is the standard. And you can't say, well, God, you made a mistake. You can't say that to God. And so that's the point. Again, I'll go back to that original statement as I'm thinking about it, and I'm just kind of, uh, thinking about it in my own mind as I've read it and you've read it and I know you uh, have read it before and I've read it before but he's not really addressing the matter of morality here. He just sort of ignores all that and goes right to the issue. Man is not in a position to second guess God, question God. God does it and it's always right. Verse 8, 
or who enclosed the sea with doors. I think this is an interesting way to put it. When bursting forth it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud wave stop. So now let me look at the imagery that's being expressed here in verses 8 through 11. And as creation of the world was like building a building in the first part of the chapter, now in this portion and this paragraph he's saying creating the oceans was like the birth of a child. And like the child came from his mother's womb. When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment, I wrapped it in clothing. Why, and thick darkness, its swaddling band. He's using the imagery of a newborn child here. He says, now when I created the ocean. Now that's a big thing, the oceans of the world. When I created the oceans of the world, it was like a little baby being born. And I clothed it. And I cared for it. And I told the ocean waves, stop, that's as far as you're going to go, right there. And they stopped. Oh, they were proud waves. But when I told them to stop, they stopped. And I let a bolt and doors, and I said, thus far you shall go, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. And that's verse 11. Who could stop the waves of the ocean? Only God could do that. Man can't do that. And so he's saying this to Job and he's saying it to us. He's saying, you know, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I created the oceans? And the origin of the oceans and the seas. And I told them, this is where you're going to stay, right here. And they stay. Now who could? You know, what's the big thing? The tsunami, if there's an earthquake out in the uh, whatever. It could create a tsunami, and the tsunami comes in. And there have been places like Sri Lanka and places like that have been devastated by means of tsunamis, tremendous waves, and which are the result of earthquakes out in the ocean and that kind of thing. Well, this is way above and beyond us as far as this, but we're talking about creation here. You know, it's absurd to think that all of this just evolved organically from nothing or from a single cell or over billions of years. They act like give them billions of years and that answers all of their evolutionary problems. Well, you can give them all the time they want and they still, you're not going to be able to bring about a transition from a lower form of life to a higher form of life. Like begets its own. That's all we know. And we do not know. No one's ever seen it happen. No one's ever wrote about seeing it happen where a smaller, a lower form of life transitioned to a higher form of life and yet that's their answer for the world as we know it today. But the real answer to this is the creative, miraculous power of God. That's the only thing that makes sense. Verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning? I wonder what he means by that. Okay, son, it's time for you to come up. Now we know that it's just figurative language that we're using here because of the rotation, revolutions of the earth and the tilt of the earth, that 
sort of th thing we understand about the movement of the sun and the movement of the earth and that kind of sun and the star, the sun. And so we're speaking in accommodative language when we say, you know, sun, it's time for you to come up. But he's saying that in verse 12, have you ever in your life commanded the morning, the dawn you see, and caused the dawn to show its place? God does that every day. God brings it to life that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. Why is the wicked shaken out of it? Because the wicked likes darkness. The wicked wants to do its mischief at night under the cover of darkness, but now the day comes and the wicked run. You ever pick up an old board that's been out there in the yard for a long time, you pick it up, what happens? All the bugs start running when the light exposes the wood. And that's what makes me think of this passage right here, and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment. Now, the clay under the seal, you know, they would take, if you wrote a letter from this person or that person, and they would envelope it, and they'd put a, some hot wax on that thing. Let that, and then they'd take the king's ring, and they'd put that king's ring in there to make a seal. Well, it changes the look of the seal. I mean, the wax. It changes the wax. The seal is making a change in the look of it. And I think that's what he's saying here. It is changed like clay under the seal. And they stand forth like a garment. In other words, as you see the light approaching, and now you see the beautiful hills and the mountains and the sea and the ocean and the landscape now is visible because of the light and from the wicked their light is withheld and the, and the uplifted arm is broken. You see, the wicked want darkness and they don't want to have anything to do with the light. But God brings the light. He brings the dawn. Now the question for Job is, have you ever done that? Have you ever been able to command the light to come on and the dawn to uh, come about? It's an humbling uh, section of scripture. And he says, have you entered into the springs of the sea? Now I'm in verse 16. Or walked in the recesses of the deep? Uh, have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Verse 18. Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Now, again, I don't think that God is being ridiculing of, of Job, but he's being firm with him. And he's telling him, you are not in a position to criticize me, especially in light of the fact you don't know what's down there in the ocean. Have you ever seen the springs of the ocean down there at the bottom? Well, no. Have you ever been down there? Well, what about death itself? And what about the deep darkness, verse 17? Do you know what's going on down there? God does, and God takes care of it. And it is his by right of creation. Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Have you understood how great the earth really is here? And tell me, if you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light, 19? And darkness, where is its place? So now he begins to look at light and darkness like they live in a house or there's a home for them and they come from the home. 
and now it's time for the darkness, so the darkness comes from his home and blankets the earth with darkness. Uh, but it's time for the dawn, and now the light comes from its home, and it begins to brighten the earth all over the world. And so it's a figure of speech to help us understand something of the light and the dark, that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home. Where's the light go? Well, maybe we can understand. We give some kind of scientific explanation as best we can, a lot more than what Job could. But even understanding light itself is an amazing study. And who would say that we understand all there is to know about light? Um, there's just so much research still being done about that important matter. And... Uh, that you have may discern the paths of its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Do you know this because you're so old that you were born back in those days and you know all these particular things? Have you entered the storehouse of the snow? So now he's coming up with these elements of the atmosphere, and he's going to talk about snow and ice and rain and the dew and the frost and the hail and that kind of thing. And so let's see how he approaches that from the standpoint of Job and mankind and what he knows or does not know. Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Hail. Which I have reserved for time of distress, for the day of war and battle. Did God ever use hail in a battle? Well, there you go. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and fire from, from uh, fire and brimstone. But what about hail? Well, hey, yeah, what about that? Uh, the Exodus. The Exodus. I was thinking about Joshua and the Gibeonites. How that as the Gibeonites began to run from Joshua, God destroyed them with hail. Uh, God brought all that about. Um, God is taking care of his people and God used these elements for the betterment of mankind. We're here as the recipients of these blessings for the day of war and battle, but you're right. These particular elements were also involved in different aspects of the history of God's people. Where is the way that the light is divided or the east wind scattered on the earth? You know, how does this thing, you know, I don't get that anyway. I can't, I wondered about that myself. What is wind to begin with? I mean, what is it? Can some of you smart guys tell me about that? What is that? What is the wind? Air? Okay. What is the air then? And here we got an east wind. Well, okay. Well, I got to have it. I know that. Molecules in motion, I guess. I don't know how to, how to describe it. Maybe there are people out here who understand all that. What the wind is, a low pressure? You know, I listen to the weather every day, and I still don't. I really am not clear on low pressure, high pressure. What are the other terms that they use? I had a student one time that was a licensed meteorologist. And uh, every time we had class, I was asking him questions about this and questions about that. Wanted to be a gospel preacher. And a uh, very, very bright guy. He knew all about the weather. And I would ask him about the movement of the winds in the fronts and all that kind of, isabels, bars and all that kind of thing. And he knew all answers to all that kind of thing. But when it comes down to the real etymological 
metaphysical definition of what these things are. I don't know that we really have a good defining ability to do that. We know we need them and we know what they are. Who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt? I remember one time I was in Memphis and I just traveled to Memphis. I was going to go to graduate school there years ago. Memphis Delta type town in East West Tennessee and so totally different from anything <coughs> I had ever experienced up in Middle and East Tennessee and got a storm going one night and it seemed like a lightning bolt went 25 miles <coughs> straight out into the sky and branched out into, I don't know, a dozen different directions and I thought, man, look at that lightning. And if you've been out west, you've seen probably the same kind of experience whereby uh, that dry air out there probably has lightning bolts that just go everywhere. And he says, who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt? You know, do you understand how I handle that and how all of that is brought about? To bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it. Now, why would God do that? Why would God have it rain in the desert where nobody lives? Pardon? He's got a reason for it, doesn't he? Yeah, part of the creation, the animals. There's a lot of life out there in the desert. You remember going to Joshua Tree? We went to Joshua Tree National Park. <coughs> Rocks and dirt, that's all it is. But a certain time of the year, it's absolutely beautiful. A cactus is one of the most beautiful flowering plants God has ever created. And I looked out over this plain, this desert, beautiful white blooming cactuses all over the place. God has created this world and he knows how to take care of it. He knows how to handle it. And he's trying to get Job and us to understand we're not in control here and we're not in any position to be able to tell people what to do and what not to do. I mean, God, not in a position to tell God what to do and what not to do. And it just strikes me as interesting, verse 26, he calls it to rain on a, in a desert place where no man lives. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, whatever she said, I agree with it. Was that an Arab word you used back there? That seemed like an Arab word you were using back there. We uh, speak English in this auditorium, if you please. Uh, Haboob, is that the name of that? A storm, a windstorm? A, a dust storm? Is a Haboob? Okay. And then uh, has, the rain, uh, has the rain a father? Let's see, let me get back to that. Verse 27, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the seeds of grass to sprout, has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? You see the different elements of the atmosphere he's talking about now. From whose womb has come the ice? How does that happen? And the frost of heaven, who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone. Now he's talking about your hail there, the ice. And the surface of the deep is in prison. I don't begin to understand all of that. I got the point though. 
the point is that God is great and God has created the world and it belongs to him and he knows how to handle it and he knows how to manage it. And in turn, we need to recognize him as the great creator of heaven and earth and that we are not in a position to criticize God. Somebody else have a comment or question along this line? Anybody? Yes? Yeah. Really? Wow. Man. Isn't that amazing? I'm sure you're right on that. That's amazing how that it comes clear across the ocean by means of the wind and that kind of thing. Who could? Tumbleweeds, of course. Yeah, there you go. Isn't that something? Well, that's another mystery. It's a marvel. <laughs> I don't know anything about these things, but anyway, it is amazing. Now, I've seen that. I've seen that out in Southern California, and the wind can blow and the dust can blow in Southern California like you never saw in your life. But um, at, any way, at any rate, I think the point of this, I'm not going to try to look at this scientifically so much because I don't understand that, but it wasn't written for me to understand scientifically. It was written for me to see how great God is. And it's always good for me to go back and read passages like that so that I'm reminded of the greatness of God and the reverence of God, the power of God. Uh, you've had a lot of talk here with these four friends and Job, but now God steps in to settle the issue. You guys are not in a position to help me with this. Yes, sir. Uh, that's a good question. Now, do you have a specific verse for me there? I suspect it may be for the whole bunch, the, not only for Job's benefit, but the four friends as well. So the second person plural probably is in use here. I say probably. This is a hard book to read in the original language, believe me. It's hard. And um, uh, the reason that it's so hard is because the, ang ang the language is so old. It is so old. And I suspect you're right. I think the you here probably refers, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, verse 37, probably. It's not just for Job, but the friends as well. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I'm going to have to go back and look it up. I suspect it's for all of them but I'm going to have to go back and look it up to be sure technically. He's asking a good question. To whom does the, who is the referent to, who's the antecedent of the pronoun you? And it's used quite a bit in this passage. And so is it a second person singular referring simply to Job or is it second person plural referring to all of them? I suspect all of them, but I need to go back and look it up. Good question. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. See, you all ask questions like that. Now, I'm going to be up tonight working on that. 
I'm not going to be able to sleep till I get that figured out. Now he gets into that 31 through 33 and he starts talking about the constellations and that kind of thing. That's another thing I've never really been able to put a handle on. Now I know they've got names, Big Dipper and all that kind of stuff, North Star and all that kind of deal. But they say, now this is the Orion. Where? I can't, I'm having trouble seeing. All these stars are up there. I'm having trouble seeing this configuration. This is Orion. Okay. Um, well, evidently, man has given names to the arrangement and the shape of some of these stars. And God makes reference to that in 31 through 33. And we'll have to talk about that a little later. Yes. Yeah, that comes up in chapter 9. All right, somebody else had a comment or question here. Anybody? Anybody? Now, Carol's good at that. She can pick these stars out, and she knows this, that, and the other. And uh, we had lunch one time with a guy who's really into this in Southern California, and he said, come on out here, let's go look at, what was it we looked at, Jupiter? He said, this is Jupiter. Is where? Saturn, okay. And he said, this is clearer than when Galileo saw it himself. I thought, wow, okay, Saturn. What's for dessert? I mean, I just don't get into that. I don't know why. I'm just not into that. But now the arrangement of these stars, evidently there are certain shapes that people identify. And I can't see it, but evidently it's there. And so anyway, we'll pick up with that 31 through 33 next time. Comment or question before we go? They have a kind of planetarium or something for, really? All right. Um, Y'all go and tell me what it's all about, will you? <laughs> I would like to go. That's a good thing. I'm joking. I would like to go. I'm not anti-scientific here at all. I would like to learn these things. And so, anyway, I'm sure you're right. All these stars... The thing that I think about is the one who created the star. Now, I'm focused on that. The one who created the stars and put them in the sky. And he said to Abraham, go out and count the stars if you think you can. Your descendants will be as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. I'm into that. And uh, uh, it is amazing. All right, before we go, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed unless there's a comment or question. Yes, sir. You're saying that two bells have rung. Okay. Two bells have rung. I'm a little late, I guess. Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you for all your many blessings. Thank you for your love and for your care. Thank you for the providential care that you give us, Heavenly Father. All the spiritual blessings of life, we're so grateful and thankful blessings which we study and learn about from the pages of your word. We're thankful for Jesus who made all this possible. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for life in him through the new birth. Forgive us of our sins, Heavenly Father, we have them. Please forgive us as we determine in our heart and our minds not to do them again, but to live for you and to tell others about how great you really are. Heavenly Father, bless these people who are here tonight who love you and love your word. 
bless us as your believing people and give us life and health so that we might tell others about your gospel. Be with us now through the course of our life and give us a home with you forever and ever is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.